This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today's special guest is Shika Dalmia, who is a visiting fellow with the Mercatus Center's program on pluralism and civil exchange. She's a former senior analyst at Reason Foundation and writing columnist for The Week, writing contributor for The Reason Magazine, Bloomberg View, USA Today, and The New York Times. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks a lot for having me on, Ian. Thank you. Um, definitely want to get into your recent New York Times piece titled, Who Has the Cure for America's Declining Birth Rate? And you kind of give away the answer in the title. I mean, it mentioned Canada. <laughs> so we're definitely going to touch upon uh, that discussion about the demographic shifts, working shortages, the benefits of migrating workforce in any countries we could emulate during that process. But to tailor into what you're doing right now, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing at Mercatus Center's program and your area of focus? Yeah, thanks, uh, Ian. Uh, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, I joined Mercatus uh, about a little over a month ago um, as part of their uh, pluralism and civil exchange program. The overarching idea of this program is that, you know, in America, the uh, excessive political polarization is causing a breakdown on, uh, you know, how that both sides, the left and the right, talk to each other. And we want to rise above that. And we want to uh, foster a civil dialogue while recognizing that America's core strength is its pluralistic and cosmopolitan culture. And one of the key threats to that culture we feel um, is uh, the rise of populist authoritarianism across the globe. Uh, not just in America, but across the globe. But it's a little surprising that it has arisen in America, you know, because America was specifically founded on certain enlightenment principles of, uh, you know, getting along, constitutional government, religious liberty, allowing people to, you know, follow the dictates of their conscience when it comes to religion. All of that is sort of under what I consider to be uh, an assault. And if this kind of like liberal democracy and this culture of liberalism falls in the United States, I really feel it'll be jeopardized the world over. You know, it's one thing for India where I come from, which is a young democracy, uh, to go in sort of a more illiberal democratic route. It's also one thing for Hungary, which is, never really had a consolidation of a strong democratic regime um, after it shed the yoke of communism um, and Soviet uh, control uh, in the 80s to go in the illiberal direction under Viktor Orban. It is quite another for America to be flirting with you know, those kinds of illiberal ideas. And America has massive demonstration effects around the world. America is both sort of an economically successful country. I mean, it's an economic superpower. And so it's kind of model of its politics and its um, 
governance is very important to the rest of the world. So if it if liberalism and you know these values of pluralism, toleration, individual liberties, constitutional government, if they fall here in the United States, I feel like we won't be at a moment where uh, you know history has ended, as Frank Fukuyama famously said, we'll be in a whole new historical chapter, which may not be as pretty as the one that uh, we've been living in under uh, now. And so one of the things I want to do is study the growth of populist authoritarianism around the wor world with the idea of strengthening uh, liberal democracy here in America. I think with populism, the idea is that a political party or a movement that aims to represent the will of the people, right? But then also uh, in history, which has been shown, that message can be co-opted for self-serving reasons and agendas. I think what would be nice for us is to bring a distinction between populism versus pluralism. Right. No, populism and pluralism, as far as I'm concerned, are you know, two completely different things. Right. Uh, populism is kind of like a more majoritarian kind of an understanding of democracy. It's a pure, you know, it's kind of in some senses, one can think about it as pure democracy where whatever the majority says sticks. So if the majority wants to, uh, you know, outlaw the rights of minorities because it's a democracy, it can do that. In America, mm -hmm. that's not what, what we've had. You know, we have constitutional protections for minorities and it doesn't matter what the popular will is, those are not up for grabs. You know, uh, uh, everybody is treated equally under the law. Everybody has the same right to express themselves and follow their religion. And we live in kind of like this very pluralistic uh, you know, sort of spirit here in America. Populism is the exact opposite of that. I mean, what populism says is that, you know, the will of the, you know, whatever is kind of like considered to be the majority, and it can be an ethnic majority, it can be a linguistic majority, it can be a religious majority, that will needs to rule the politics. That will needs to assert itself and everybody then needs to follow that will, regardless of what you know, their personal beliefs are. That's a very dangerous kind of a philosophy, in my view, or ideology. And, um, you know, in India, uh, it's, uh, which is a country I'm most familiar with, because that's where I grew up, uh, it's taking the form of a certain kind of Hindu nationalism, you know, because Hindus are the majority population over there. And they feel, you know, under Hindu nationalism, it is felt that, uh, religious minorities who live over there should live under a regime that is established by, you know, certain kind of Hindu understanding of politics. And that's kind of like a, you know, so that's antithetical to pluralism. It's antithetical to religious liberty. And that is something that I think is extremely dangerous. And if, you know, and you see a corollary of that here in the United States in the sense that the, the rise of, uh, you know, Trump and, uh, um, you know, some of his new right followers like Tucker Carlson, you know, they feel America is losing its identity as a, you know, white Christian state. 
you know, and the code word for that is sort of Western civilization, that, you know, we need to protect the Western civilization ethos of America, which is based on certain Christian tenets. And I'm oversimplifying, and this is, I'm stating it a little too sure. truly, yeah. but that's ultimately, you know, what they, what they want is sort of a more majoritarian Christian ethnostate stamp on American politics, which I feel threatens liberalism, it threatens pluralism. And so I, and I think if America goes this route of uh, Christian ethnostate, I think there'll be very little hope to prevent Hindu nationalists from asserting in India that, you know, we want a Hindu state and, uh, you know, Muslim countries in the Middle East, which we've, you know, which the world has wanted to liberalize and democratize, uh, retreating into an even more, you know, some virulent form of Islam, or, um, you know, Hungary is the new poster child for people like Tucker Carlson. And what uh, Orban has been saying very explicitly is that, uh, you know, he wants Hungary to be an illiberal democracy. What does that mean? I mean, illiberal, I mean, he's owning the term illiberal. And, um, it's uh, and so what does he mean by that he means that he thinks hungary has christian roots it has roots in a certain uh, you know hungarian ethnic group and he feels that that ought to have its stamp on the politics of hungary and everybody else should abide by that stamp right and with that rise of populism it brings a threat to the civil liberties of people who come to America, also minority demographics just in general, people who are from a minority group. And I think you sort of touch upon this in your piece, The Cure for America's Declining Birth Rate. Um, you give a portrait of the state of demographic decline in the US. And I know the Census Bureau reported recently of this slowing rate. Did that add to what you've been already thinking about in this space? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the issues that populist authoritarians, populist nationalists rail against is immigration. Because, you, you know, you allow immigrants from different cultures, different countries, different ethnicities into your midst. And what do they do? They dilute your cultural identity, right? And if the, your project is to protect your cultural identity, then they are enemy number one. Of the state. And so Victor Orban has been, you know, extremely explicit about that, that he doesn't want immigrants in the country. And that's one of the things that uh, people like Tucker Carlson like about Victor Orban, that he's taken such a strong position against, uh, for instance, Angela Merkel, her ch the chancellor, Angela Merkel, very open immigration policies. I mean, she has opened a country to refugees from uh, Syria, you know, from Muslim countries, and Orban considers that a civilizational threat. And there are echoes of that here in America too. I mean, there are more than echoes. I mean, there is a whole movement that is building opposing immigration on precisely those grounds because, you know, they just don't want immigrants from different nationalities, different religions, you know, Hindus, Muslims, uh, Buddhists, what have you, uh, coming to the United States. They want to keep America, you know, as a, in its current, you know, status quo, majoritarian ethnic state of some kind. And again, I'm oversimplifying things a whole lot. So, but the problem with that is that if you impose those kinds of draconian immigration controls, at any time it's a problem. 
but it's particularly a problem right now when America is in a state of demographic decline. And by demographic decline, we mean that America, the fertility rates in America, which used to be much better than those in Europe, over the last you know, decade or so have sort of collapsed. And now America, so the displacement fertility rate is like 2.1 children per woman, uh, you know, per couple. And America was maintaining sort of replacement level fertility rates until about, uh, about you know, 2008 or a little before that. And now America's uh, fertility rate is 1.7 per, you know, per woman which means that we don't, we are not even replacing our current population. And that has all kinds of implications. I mean, one implication is, you know, for your uh, old age benefits, your retiree benefits, right? And there, uh, you know, social security and Medicare were founded on certain assumptions of like a worker to retiree ratio that, you know, you would have four or five workers supporting one retiree. And those were the actuarial assumptions behind those programs. You know, so the worker to beneficiary ratio uh, in 1960, when great uh, society, Johnson's Great Society programs, you know, Medicare and what have you were enacted, was something like 5.1 worker per beneficiary, which was sustainable. Now that ratio has dropped to 2.1 per workers per beneficiary or that's that's where it's going by 2040 that's how low it'll be that means that means two young workers are supporting the one retiree now if you think about it these young workers are also parents they also have children whom they need to support so if you you know so for young workers to bear the responsibility on both sides, the generational responsibility of raising children, as well as supporting, you know, their parents and elderly and, you know, what have you, is going to be hugely onerous, uh, you know, for the young population. And the last time America had such low birth rate was back in, I think, the 1930s you know, at the time of the Great Depression. So we are kind of in dangerous territory right now. And there are only really two things we can do to boost our population. One of them is somehow induce women to have more children, you know, so more birth rates. Uh, the other thing we can do is get more, have more immigration. The problem with boosting birth rates, there are there are gale force wind, uh, winds that are going against increased fertility. One of them is easy birth control. You know, women have reproductive choice. They want to control the timing of their children. They, you know, they don't necessarily want to have a whole lot of children, although, you know, surveys say they want to have 2.5 children, but they are having only 1.7 children per woman. But to get women to have more children is extremely difficult when you have birth control available. It is also very difficult because children, unlike in traditional societies, you know, where you see high fertility rates, children are a, you know, an asset to parents. You know, they start generating income at a very young age. You know, you need um, in agricultural society, you just need as many hands as possible. And you start sending kids to the farms when they are 13 year old or even younger. That is not the norm for us. We invest in our children. You know, we don't want child labor to support, you know, ourselves. And so 
you know, so if you are not going to get, uh, you know, if you if, if children are not going to be assets and there is easy birth control available, it is very hard to persuade parents to have more children. So the right. only option really is immigration. Right, right. And I mean, you touched upon all the different areas why immigration is a benefit to the stimulation of the economy, and especially the economy that is facing a decline in its uh, youthful workforce. Uh, you, you need uh, a population that is young, entrepreneurial, and willing to work. The immigrants <laughs> fill that space. So, and and also not just as workers, but you know, as CEOs and uh, people who actually create jobs for others. I know that more than half of the 91 startups that become $1 billion companies had one or more immigrant founders. Right there, it speaks to the entrepreneurial spirit and the ability for migrants to come to America and stimulate the economy and, and bring more jobs. Right. I mean, and in my New York Times piece that you mentioned, uh, you know, I pointed out that there were two historical moments when America, you know, sort of catapulted into a different league economically and, you know, and socially in the world. And one of them was just shortly after World War II, when you had uh, returning veterans to the country, right? And at that, so World War II did a number of things. World War II... Um, broke down all kinds of racial and gender barriers and brought more workers into the workforce. So we experienced sort of a demographic boom. You had returning veterans from World War II along with these barriers against, you know, employment of Blacks and women. And you got like this burst of you know, young workers into the economy. And that just catapulted great growth rates in America in a way that it, you know, it didn't do in other countries. Another reason was, of course, that, you know, America, World War II didn't happen on American soil. It happened elsewhere. So we didn't face that kind of physical devastation, you know, that we needed to recover from. So that combined with the fact that there were more women, there were more uh, Blacks, there were more returning veterans. And uh, so you got like this influx of young dynamic labor force in the US economy that just catapulted growth rates. So that was one moment. The second moment was in uh, you know, the 1990s when uh, America experienced the IT revolution. And the reason for that was that America in 1965 tore down, uh, you, you know, these immigration restrictions against immigrants in Eastern Europe and Asia, and uh, that had been enacted, you know, in 1924. In 1924, America passed uh, this national origins quota law, where it was only allowing groups already in America to get 2% of their current population, you know, to sponsor uh, uh, you know, 2% of their current population into America. So if you were German, then, you know, uh, if the German population was, say, whatever, then 2% of that could be brought in as a quota into the United States. So it, it was designed to maintain the Western ethnic makeup of the American population and keep the numbers low. That law was abandoned in 1965. And America opted for a family reunification policy, and it, you know, there was no limit on uh, how many immigrants could come from any one country. Uh, 
That resulted in a lot of uh, not just Eastern European, but Asian immigrants coming into the mm -hmm. country. And Asian immigrants, you know, there was a surplus of, uh, China, uh, you know, IT professionals or, uh, you know, highly educated professionals in China and India. And they, a lot of them came to the United States, settled in Silicon Valley and made the IT boom possible. And the IT boom, as you know, I mean, it was just transformational. I mean, every uh, or a major IT company in the world, I mean, uh, in Silicon Valley, not only has a number of uh, foreign professionals working, you know, in the sort of in the mid ranks, but they're top tier CEOs. Uh, Sundar Pichari, you know, who's Google, if, uh, you know, Steve Jobs was the son of Syrian refugees, right? Sergey, uh, Sergey Brim, he was, you know, they're all like, there are so many immigrants in Silicon Valley and their innovations, they, you know, they've transformed not just America, but they transformed the world through the IT revolution. It just shows the diversity of a, the workforce, how that adds to the economic boom of a country, you know, you mentioned um, during World War II with women and immigrants and, and black workers, and then also again during the IT revolution and during the 90s, there was immigrants who came over and built the nation's IT infrastructure. So two main points in history where a diverse workforce helped the economic boom of a country. Now, since we're having shortages in terms of workers and declining uh, rates, we need to stabilize and stimulate the economy. And these are the type of people who we can look to to help for that stimulation. Um, you, you say that <laughs> Canada is doing something correctly. So what exactly is Canada doing right in terms of addressing the similar issues that we are facing and how may we as a country potentially implement similar aspects? So, um, you know, if you look, if you listen to sort of the neo-right, the populist authoritarians that are looking at Hungary as kind of like a model for the United States, right? So what is Hungary doing? Hungary has, uh, not, uh, you know, has curtailed immigration very dramatically since Orban has been in power in 2010. And it has also been giving very huge cash incentive to Hungarians to have more children. So Hungary gives something like, you know, almost like $30,000 per couple if they have a third child. Mm -hmm. And those incentives have not worked to boost native fertility rates in Hungary. Canada, which is also, which has been facing, you know, demographic decline, has gone a completely different route. It has started, you know, welcoming immigrants in a pretty huge way. On a per capita basis, Canada takes in three times more immigrants than the United States does. You know, we hear a lot about how many, you know, America is the nation of immigrants and it, you know, welcomes the most number of immigrants in anywhere in the world. Actually, that's not even true anymore in absolute numbers, but, uh, relative to population, America is, you know, in countries where the per capita income is over $20,000, it's like ranks 37th out of 50 such countries. So it's like really like low and it, you know, or it's not great. It's track record in welcoming uh, new immigrants is not as great as, you know, we are led to believe. Canada's in fact is pretty damn good. 
And what Canada has done is it's come up with all kinds of innovation, innovative ways to get, you know, the kinds of immigrants that will help Canada. What I discussed in uh, the New York Times piece is a, is a program that Canada started in, I think it was like 1994 or 1996 called the Provincial Nominee Program. Essentially what that program did was it told, you know, can Canadian provinces that, uh, you know, we'll give you, each of you will get a quota based on your population to get immigrants from anywhere in the world who you think are going to help you. And so this program was in addition to the federal program that's run out of Ottawa. So that program admits, you know, still a lot of people, like about, I think, 70% of immigrants come through uh, in Canada, come through the, uh, you know, the federal program, the national program, but it also gave uh, provinces uh, uh, the, um, you know, the power to import immigrants from wherever they wanted. And this program started with just, you know, 200 immigrants. And now it's, you know, it's become, it's become really huge. And it's been wildly successful, you know, even though the immigrants who come to Canada under the provincial nominee program, they can relocate to a non-sponsoring province the minute they, you know, land. In Canada. I mean, they can just go to their province, find a job in another province, and just move. But they are not doing it. The retention rate of these provinces is over like 80%. You know, five years after an immigrant lands over there, they are still there. And the reason this program has been this successful is because states and provinces know better what kind of workers they want. You know, do we want uh, semi-skilled professionals like electricians and, you know, plumbers? And, uh, and so there is a very granular matching between the jobs and the skills of the immigrants whom the provinces are coming, hope we're getting. And because these immigrants have great jobs, they put down roots, they end up staying over there. And America doesn't have anything really like that. America, the entire immigration program is a federally managed program. And you have federal bureaucrats sitting in Washington, DC, uh, planning the labor market for an economy that is 10 times bigger than that of Canada's, right? I mean, there are 300 million Americans or 330 million Americans, there are about 35 million Canadians. So our economy and our country is you know, 10 times bigger. And yet you have these federal bureaucrats sitting in Washington planning the labor market of this entire huge country. And they don't do a very good job of it. You have shortages in almost every field over here because they are constantly underestimating how many immigrants are needed. Right. And hopefully that we can take a couple of pointers from neighboring countries and they have shown statistically that that has boosted and bolstered their economy and their workforce. Since we are facing the shortages that you say, uh, it would be prudent to have all who are capable and skillful to come and help in a meaningful way. So uh, I appreciate the work that uh, you do, Shika. If people want to read more of your writings from your publications or learn more about what you do, where can they go? 
So that, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that gives me an opening to pitch the, the Substack I am launching uh, hopefully oh, next week after Labor Day. It's going to be called The Unpopulist and it's going to be completely free. So you just have to go and register and you will start getting uh, everything that I write on immigration, on populism, on nationalism, but I'm also going to be getting other, uh, uh, you know, other researchers and writers from across the world uh, who are experts in their, you know, in their countries and their areas to write, you know, for the Substack. Uh, I'll also be doing podcasts, just like you are. Oh, of, awesome! Uh, Perfect. Yeah. And so uh, that would be the place to go, but you can also read my columns at the week and uh, also you know, you can go to the Mercator Center website and just check under my author name and find uh, find my latest. Perfect. Will do. Well, thank you for taking out the time. I appreciate you. Thank you very much, Ian. This was fun. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.